What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 What's stopping? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. I will reiterate that question. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love to hear you give an answer to that question. We'd love to help you work through any issues that you may have along that journey. And to do so, just pick up the phone and give us a call. Wide open phone lines for you at the beginning of the program. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one. 205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985, and you can always uh, send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Charles Beery is producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every single day, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, I'm all right. How about you? Terrific, thank you. Got an email here from Tom, and he says, From time to time, you receive questions about the wording of the Apostles' Creed that reads, He descended to hell. You point out that this is not a reference to the hell of the damned, but the abode of the dead or the Old Testament saints awaiting redemption. With the obvious confusion, why not change the wording to state clearly what is meant by the phrase? Well, because as Catholics, we are deeply allergic to the idea of changing the language of the creed. So we can we can catechize people into what it means. Not to mention wasn't written in English. And wasn't written in English. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So um, yeah, I mean the the solution to the problem is uh, teach Catholics what they believe. Yeah. That's the answer to a lot of problems. That's right. In the church. That's right. Now, why we appear to be reluctant to do it is a whole other matter. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, it's what we're trying to do here every day, right, Jack? That's right. That's exactly right. Um, Tony writes in, are there any scriptures or traditional prayers that speak to invoking prayer or intercession to the saints in heaven and for those in purgatory? Uh, more than I can count. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I literally couldn't even begin to enumerate the number of, of, uh, of traditional prayers invoking the saints uh, for all kinds of intercessions, including uh, the repose of souls in purgatory. I mean, my best advice to you would be go go pick up a book of traditional Catholic prayers. I'm sure we have dozens of them for sale in the EWTN uh, religious catalog, uh, or you know your religious bookstore uh, near nearby, and you'll find yeah you'll find s- scores and scores of such prayers. And. I'll just follow that purgatory question. It's it's kind of been, you know, it's interesting. It must be because it's November. Okay. But yeah. we have been getting an inordinate amount of purgatory questions of late. And it's I always think, a hot topic. Yes. Uh, but Peter wants to know, purgatory is not in the Bible, so how can it exist? Oh, I beg to differ, Peter. 
Jack Williams is not in the Bible, and he exists. <laughs> Lots of things exist that are not in the Bible. Uh, but uh, but look, I, I, would, I would suggest that it is in the Bible, first <laughs> well, of all. Well, I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that, right? So just the criterion is 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 false, right? The, the, whether or not something is in Scripture is really irrelevant to the questions of its existence. And that's even true when it comes to the questions of Christian doctrine. Like, there are, there are a lot of Christian doctrines that we are bound by divine authority to hold that are nowhere enunciated in the text of sacred scripture. Uh, and I'll give you one that, you, even if you're not a Catholic, you probably implicitly already grant. Give me the list of books in the biblical canon. You know, when, when I was at the Protestant Bible camp, we would learn to sing the books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You have to enumerate the list. Same thing with the New Testament. Where's the list come from? Because you can read each one of those books individually, and what you will not find in any of them is a list of the books that belong in the biblical canon. And yet every Protestant child learns the list and learns it as authoritative. This is the authoritative list. You know where he learned it from? He learned it from sacred tradition. That's where he got it from, right? So so there are doctrines in Christianity that are not spelled out in sacred scripture, and that was by Christ's design, of course. Now, as to your suggestion that purgatory is not in the Bible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with Jack on this one and say, well, I think it is in the Bible, but not by name. Again, most Christian doctrines are not in Scripture by name. We, we, we infer them from the text of sacred Scripture, then we assign a name to the category. A good example would be the doctrine of the Trinity. So we have the unicity of God in the Bible. We have the personality of the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the Bible. We have the full divinity of the Spirit and the Son in the Bible. You put all those together, and you have what we call the doctrine of the Trinity, although you're not going to find the word Trinity anywhere in the text. It's similar with the doctrine of purgatory. So some of the things that we find explicitly mentioned in, in sacred Scripture is the uh, the reasonableness of prayer for the dead. So you'll find that, for example, in Second Maccabees chapter twelve. Also in Paul's letter to uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy, he talks about praying for the repose of his the soul of his friend Anisiphorus. So Old and New Testament, you have prayers for the dead. You also have the logic of purgatory in sacred scripture, namely the idea that we must be purified from sin in order to see God. You find that in the Old and New Testament passages like Psalm twenty-four or Romans chapter seven. Matthew chapter 5, um, and the idea that we should do penance for sin even when it is forgiven. You'll find that in passages like 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 24. So all of the disparate parts that you need to build up a doctrine of purgatory, you can find in sacred scripture. Uh, and then, of course, you know the actual, uh, the actual practice of the church in praying for the dead and an explicit doctrine of purgatory in late antiquity uh, as the church fathers you know, reasoned from the Bible and from liturgical practice uh, to, to sort of give a full explanation of it, and it enters into the, the course of Catholic tradition and, of course, is ruled upon authoritatively by the magisterium, which is guided by the charism of infallibility. So you do have it in the Bible. You have it in sacred tradition. You have it uh, in magisterial teaching as pretty soundly established as Christian doctrine. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. A couple of lines open for you and plenty of time for your calls today. On a Tuesday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
You know, EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel live every single morning at 8 Eastern Time, except Good Friday. And we want to help you draw closer to our Eucharistic King. Our free Mass Guide booklet, which includes both English and Latin text, will help you to follow along with Mass on EWTN and unite with Catholics worldwide for a free Mass booklet or ebook simply visit ewtn.com slash catholicism then click on readings 833-288-EWTN that's our toll-free number it's a free phone call anywhere in north america 833-288-3986 first up today is tobias in shorewood illinois listening on wsfi radio tobias you're on the air with dr anders Thanks so much, Tobias. I really, really appreciate the question. So Jesus told us in the Gospel of John, he said, When I am lifted up from the earth, meaning when he went up to heaven, I will draw everyone to myself. So the reason that Christ ascended into heaven was so that the Catholic Church could spread the gospel to the whole world and call people to the act of faith, that they would come to know God by faith. And there's a difference between knowing God by faith and knowing God face to face. Faith is a virtue because it's hard sometimes to have faith in something that you can't see. Uh, and yet it is perfecting of us. Like when we, when we, you, like if you, your mom tells you to go do something and then she leaves and you can't see her and she can't see you. And you've got to make a decision if you're going to do what she told you to do or not, even though she doesn't have, didn't in the room with you, right? And that determination to do the good, even though maybe you can't see your mom, uh, helps perfect you, makes you a better human being. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He he went to heaven to call all people to the act of faith, and the church is out there preaching the gospel. And then uh, when they've gone out into the whole world and all those have come into faith that are going to come into faith, he'll come back. Uh, the question, why does why does Jesus give different gifts to people? Why do some people get more, some people get less? Um, well, you know, Scripture tells us that God gives everyone a special gift that's their own, not someone else's, so that they can have their own unique form of service to the people of God. So, Tobias, you can do things that I can't do. Um, Jack, who sits next to me, can do things that I can't do. I can do things you guys can't do. But if we are joined together in love, in charity, then together we can do more than any one of us individually. If we were all exactly the same, we wouldn't have that kind of relationship. So we learn to depend on each other through this, this odd distribution of gifts. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Paul in Tacoma, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Paul, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Oh, thank you. So um, my question is, I come from a Protestant background where um, they teach that the flesh is basically evil, we're born evil, and um, it's a flesh that hinders us from being able to um, make good choices in a way. And um, I was wondering what the Catholic's view is on the flesh. Wow. I'm so glad you asked the question. I really appreciate it. And and I I was raised like you. I was raised in a tradition that taught me that human nature was evil. And not only was it evil, but it was so evil that every thought of a man's heart was evil. And uh, in the most seemingly virtuous person alive, it's like a Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Uh, This is what I was taught growing up. 
uh, however virtuous she might seem, uh, deep down inside, her motives were so vitiated by pride and self-love and egotism that, that, that every, even, even her most seemingly virtuous acts would have been intrinsically hateful to God. I believe Jonathan Edwards, great Puritan preacher and revivalist, uh, his famous uh, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, said to his congregation that they were more loathsome in the eyes of God than the most loathsome serpent was in their eyes, that God despised them and hated them and could barely stand to look at them. They were so nasty and despicable. Right, so I'm, under, I'm familiar with that Calvinistic view of human nature. Uh, that is not the Catholic view of human nature at all, at all. Um, sacred Scripture says that when God made the world, he declared it to be good, declared it good. Human nature is good. And, uh, and, and the best part of human nature, the most elevated part of human nature, is our rationality, which is the basis of our freedom, our moral responsibility. It is the part of us that is most like God. And uh, the Catholic teaching is that, that, that reason— that our rationality is the rule and measure of the good. So the way I can tell good from evil is with reference to natural reason. We don't think that natural reason is so vitiated by evil that it cannot discern the moral good. Uh, it's why you find things like the golden rule, for example, not just in Christian civilization, but in many world civilizations. You, you can find elements of truth and goodness and beauty and sanctification in other cultures because we share a common humanity, which is at root good. Now, Catholic Church teaches that our, that our humanity is wounded, that we suffer certain weaknesses that are an impediment to the life of virtue. Uh, one of them in particular would be concupiscence. Concupiscence means that we have an immoderate desire for bodily pleasure. But here is a beautiful teaching about the Catholic view of concupiscence, or for that matter, any wound of original sin. If you're a Protestant like Luther was or Calvin— they think that concupiscence, that if you are immoderately drawn to some inappropriate good, that the mere fact of your attraction is itself morally imputable, culpable, guilty, wrong, evil. And so because of that, the, the Protestant, in my judgment, in my experience, is really trapped in a kind of neurotic uh, uh, trap that he can't get out of, because no matter where he turns his eyes or turns his appetites— he, he imagines that everything he does is hateful to God. That's not the Catholic view. The Catholic view is that concupiscence is not sin. It's a weakness. And in fact, you know, let's, let's say um, I go out for pizza, and, uh, you know, they offer me a third piece of pizza. And I think, man, I'd really like that third piece of pizza. That's some really good pizza here. <laughs> but three pieces, that would be gluttonous. And maybe it's hard for me to say no to the pizza. Well, if I'm a Calvinist... Merely desiring the pizza is a sin. But watch what happens if you're a Catholic. Desiring the pizza and refraining from eating it is actually an act of temperance, and therefore it's virtuous. So the very same moral act is conceived by the Calvinists as something sinful that makes God hate you, and by the Catholic is regarded as, as something that is, that is virtuous and praiseworthy in the eyes of God. Because in the Catholic conception, I'm resisting a temptation. The temptation itself is not a sin, it's just the temptation to sin. Whereas for the Calvinist, even the temptation itself is morally imputable. It's a very different conception of, of the nature of the moral life. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One open line for you at 833-288-3986. Next up is Tom in Twinsburg, Ohio. He is listening to us on The Rock today out of Cleveland. Tom, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yes, Dr. David. I'm a little bothered by the concept of imperfect contrition because I I can't parse how much of my contrition is free from the fear of hell and is solely for love of God. So, I mean, the way they were depicted to me back by the nuns in school, like if a little boy uh, is going to confession and it makes an imperfect act of contrition and is hit by a car, he goes to hell. Or if uh... I can help you. I really appreciate it. Okay. So first of all, your, your recollection of your Catholic school education, either the nuns got it wrong or you remembered it wrong, because the way you okay. reported it to me is not the Catholic teaching. In fact, imperfect contrition is sufficient for a valid absolution in the confessional. Simply not wanting to go to hell is enough reason to go to confession and receive absolution. Perfect contrition is necessary for forgiveness outside of the confessional. But within the confessional, imperfect contrition suffices. Now, I I think that you, you suggested, or maybe you began to suggest, that you get scrupulous about trying to discern whether you have perfect or imperfect contrition. And uh, I don't think you need to bother yourself about that, first of all, because if you're in the regular practice of going to confession, then you have 100% confidence that your sins are forgiven, even if you have imperfect contrition. But moreover, um, look, when you say the act of contrition, you know, God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended you and choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. I've sinned against you, whom I should love above all things. I should love you above all things. That's, That's the motive of perfect contrition, right? I should love you above all things. Um... When I was a kid growing up, the idea of loving God was confusing to me because I equated it with enthusiastic religious observance. You know, it was common in my church to speak of someone as, oh, they really love God. And what we meant when we said that, at least in my Protestant church, was, well, this is a person who is, who, who is always in the church. They always darken the door of the church. They're, they constantly pray. You know, they teach Sunday school. They're involved in a lot of religious activity. And, uh, uh, you know, and I you know, like a lot of 12-year-old boys, I didn't particularly like hymnody. I thought being at church was fairly boring. Um, it wasn't terribly interested in Sunday school. And so the idea that I had to be engaged frenetically in a lot of religious activity in order to qualify as loving God above all things really created a lot of anxiety for me. That, that got solved for me when I became a Catholic and I began to understand what the Catholic Church teaches about the nature of God, who God is, what God is like. The concept of loving God became much more attractive and interesting to me. Because, see, for a Catholic, we, what we hold is that God is the source and origin of everything true, good, and beautiful. And, and including what's true, good, and beautiful in me. And so loving God is nothing other than wanting the highest good in every manifestation in which I can encounter it. That means that I, I, want, I want to be the best version of me that I can be. Um, I want my wife to be the best version of her. I want my marriage to be the best version of my marriage, right? And that I'm not, I'm not placing something else ahead of the truth, the good, and the beautiful. And it's possible to do that. Like, I mean, I can, I can turn myself over to my own narrow egotistical pleasures uh, and, and do so knowing that it deforms what's ultimately in my own best interest. 
But the idea of, hey, I should just be united to the idea of pursuing the best, of seeking the highest good and everything, is not the same thing as I need to be involved in a lot of frenetic religious activity. That, to me, is a much more reasonable doctrine and one that I can understand and I can really wed myself to. And, uh, and you know, look, I, you don't have to know if your contrition is perfect or not. And, of course, I don't know myself. But when I go to confession sometimes and I think, you know, like, why am I sad here? Am I sad because I think I'm going to go to hell? Or am I sad because I know that, like, I really had an opportunity to do good and I blew it? That, that's the kind of distinction I think we're trying to make here, right? Not not you know, not the slavish concern over hell or or kind of scrupulous observance of religious ritual. But am I am I really being the best version of myself that I can be? Am I trying to be like Christ? Am I trying to be like God in His charity and rationality? That that's what we mean. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Linda's in the great state of Iowa, listening on Aquinas Radio. Linda, you're on with Doctor David Andrews. Hey, Doctor Andrews. I'm I'm heading to your old stomping grounds right now, the University of Iowa. All right. <laughs> um, so I have a question. Um, I have a I have I've always had a hard time reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I'm doing Bible studies, which of course helps. But, um, you know, I, I just don't ever trust my own interpretations of what I'm reading, and I have a hard time. So my, my question is, is it okay to just—I um, mean, I have so much faith in the Catholic Church and what the Catholic Church teaches, so is it okay to just go with what the Catholic Church says without feeling like I'm just blindly— Doing it. I'm smiling. I'm sense. smiling from ear to ear here, Kate, because you're making me very happy, right? Usually it's the opposite call that I get on the radio. It's usually people who want a reason to disbelieve what the church teaches. Someone who calls to ask permission to believe the church. What a, what a delightful call to receive, yeah. So I'm, I'm, you're making me happy here. Uh, the church has always differentiated two kinds of faith. Um, there's what we call explicit faith, and then there's what we call implicit faith. Explicit faith is when a person can form a rational idea of the doctrines of Christianity, articulate them, and affirm them. Implicit faith is when, for one reason or another, an individual doesn't arrive at a perfectly explicit understanding of what's being proposed, but simply believes because God has revealed it. And all of us are somewhere on that continuum— Right. I don't think there's anyone that has a perfectly explicit faith where they can give a rational account of everything that is proposed by the Catholic faith. Um, there are people whose faith is entirely implicit. So, you know, take, for example, the baby who leaves the, the baptismal font. The child has no explicit faith at all, but does have the infused virtue of faith through the sacrament of baptism. So their faith is entirely implicit. And as they get older, you know, the first thing they're going to be taught is, well, you know, God revealed this, and they accept that without question. All of us are someplace in that continuum. And uh, to recognize that and say, hey, here's an area of my life where I, I feel like the most reasonable thing for me to do is just to cede my, uh, my act of faith to the authority of the Church. That, that's a beautiful place to be. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, now, you know, every one of us is also called to develop our rationality, you know, for, so that we can be capable of things like prudent judgment. 
So, you know, we're not we're not cutting off the obligation to think, the obligation to try to discern. Um, and like you said, you know, submitting to the authority of the church doesn't mean slavish obedience to every prelate who opens his mouth. It's it will require some effort to actually discern what is the dogmatic teaching of the church. But yeah, the principle you raise is perfectly valid. 833-288-EWTN. It's called to communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Our friends in Siouxland, at, at Siouxland Catholic Radio in Sioux City, Iowa, need to hear from you next week. They're airing their annual fall pledge drive next Tuesday through Thursday. So if you're listening in Sioux City, Storm Lake, or anywhere, please support your local EWTN Catholic Radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Um, have we... We're going next to Kate... Um, our 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 friend Tobias was pr- listening on WSFI also. Wonderful. And Kate is in Chicago, also listening on WSFI. Kate, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Dr. Anders. We are cradle Catholics. My husband and I have been married 31 years. He has been diagnosed with severe aphasia, which he has no speech anymore, and he has very little understanding, if at all, of language. Um, he has frontotemporal lobe dementia as well. He loves going to church, he loves communion, he loves his faith, but he has no longer been able to do confession for many years, and every time we drive past a Catholic church, he points to it, and I think to myself, is he not supposed to go to communion because he can't confess anymore, and what does this mean for his salvation, and what do I pray to keep any dark forces from him? I don't mean to sound weird saying that, but I want to keep his spirit Absolutely. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate the question. I'm so sorry for your suffering and his, but how touching that even with the loss of language, he still has that love of the Church and the desire for the sacraments. That's so beautiful. And I think right there, that should give you a tremendous amount of hope. You know, the the, the, the work of grace in the soul is not dependent on, on the, the full functioning of our neurology, right? It's something that transcends nature. But the evidence of that is in his loving heart, and that's so beautiful. Uh, a couple things that occurred to me. One is the fact that he cannot articulate his sins would not bar him from receiving the sacrament of reconciliation. And, uh, you know, um, our, our own mother Angelica lost the ability to speak uh, when she had her stroke. And yet uh, the priest that would attend to her would uh, would go and exhort her to, you know, to sorrow for sin. And you, you say to God in your heart, whatever you're capable of doing, and they would grant absolution. And that's very standard practice, right? Um, so uh, uh, it's not necessary that he be able to articulate. So it might be, you, you might not want to go put him in the, in the confessional line on a Saturday afternoon at the church, but, you know, you could ask a priest to come visit the home and explain the situation and say he would he would be comforted by the sacrament of reconciliation and, you know, can we find a way to do this? And so you, you can make those kinds of arrangements. Um, uh, in terms of um, his salvation, so he's he's in a good place, right? He can still be involved in the sacramental ministries. To be sure, he should continue to go to communion, uh, of course. I mean, there's no reason for him to not go to communion. The only, the only reason to not go to communion would be, A, 
if he were involved in some publicly scandalous activity, and it seems like that is definitely not going to happen, or B, if he's conscious of grave sin, right? Well, that's not for you to judge, right? So there's no reason to presume that he himself has any consciousness of grave sin, so he would meet all the qualifications, and he has the act of faith, right, implicitly at least in the teaching of the Church, so no bar to his receiving Holy Communion. Um, finally, of course, we don't know, there's no way we can get inside his subjectivity and understand quite exactly what his own subjective consciousness is like or his state of freedom or rationality, but the, the, less, the less he is rational, the less morally culpable he is. And so it becomes, it becomes at some point impossible for him to sin. So uh, I would have absolutely no anxiety uh, on his behalf on that, on that score. Um, in terms of what you can pray for him, I, I would not in any way conceive of his condition as something that puts him in a position of spiritual vulnerability. On the contrary, I mean, Christ has a tremendous amount of compassion and love in the gospel for the little ones who come to him with childlike faith, uh, and I think he is right where he needs to be in terms of being right smack dab in the heart, uh, the sacred heart of Jesus himself. So I wouldn't have any anxiety about that at all, but I think your your love for him, solicitude for him, his love for the Church is just a beautiful, beautiful testimony uh, to all of us, and uh, may we all have such such childlike love for the Eucharist and for the sacraments and for the Church. Amen. God bless you, Kate. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. One line open at 833-288-3986. We'll stay right in Chicago. Stephen is a first-time caller listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Stephen, you're on with Dr. Andrews. Stephen, are you there? Hey, Steve. Chicago and Stephen. Let's go to Tabitha. Right. She is in the great state of Arkansas, listening on the EWTN app. Tabitha, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello. How are you guys today? Great. How about you? Okay. So um, I do a lot of apologetic um, reading, and I read the Bible, and I come across 2 Corinthians 5.10, and I feel like that supports purgatory, but nobody ever uses it for that, and I was just curious if I'm just wrong. It says that everyone uh, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, including evil. So, yeah. doesn't that... Thanks. Support? I really appreciate the question. So, I would say that Second Corinthians 5, verse 10, is a very strong text in support of the idea of the final judgment, or the individual judgment, too, that, that we will have to give an account to Christ for the things that we have done. Um, that is, of course, an aspect of purgatory, but I don't think you could say that that speaks specifically and uniquely to the idea of purgatory. The idea of purgatory is really that for those who die in the state of grace, uh, but without having done adequate penance, uh, or have achieved adequate purification of sin, that they have an opportunity post-mortem to do that penance and be purified from sin. And uh, it doesn't seem to me that that's really what's under discussion here in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, I think a, a better case for purgatory can be made by inference from Second uh, Maccabees chapter 12, where we see the validity of praying on behalf of the dead. Also, Paul's first letter to Timothy has prayers for the dead. And you don't pray for people if they don't stand in, in a position to benefit from those prayers. The souls in heaven don't need them. The souls in hell won't benefit from them. So it's reasonable to infer a kind of intermediate state where the souls can benefit from the prayers of the faithful. 
Um, also, the principle of purification as a requirement to see God. Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. St. Paul says, Be sure to purify yourself of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit, out of reverence for God. That's 2 Corinthians 7. Uh, Psalm 24 says, Who can ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, and then finally, the idea that we should do penance for sin, even after receiving forgiveness, uh, is clearly a biblical teaching, but two passages that are very clear on that are Second Samuel 12 and Second Samuel 24. So there's a lot of scriptural warrant for the idea of purgatory, but putting it all together in systematic form um, is, uh, is what happens. That's the way dogma develops, right? Because you have these hints and suggestions in scripture combined with a practice that goes back to antiquity of the church of praying on behalf of these people. And then the fathers of the church said, well, why do we do these things? Why does scripture teach these things? And they articulate the doctrine of purgatory to make sense of those disparate elements. Next up is Suzanne. She is in Potomac, Maryland, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Suzanne, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Well, uh, thank you, gentlemen. Great show. I've been uh, listening to you carefully for a long time. Um, I have a a, a question. Uh, My mother was raised um, Calvinist uh, Protestant, and I, um, due to a lot of suffering uh, growing up uh, living under her, uh, have, have converted to the Catholic faith uh, some 27 years ago. She continues to mistreat me just terribly. And I'm wondering, is this something that's acceptable practice for uh, certain types of Calvinist uh, you know, Protestants? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. So that's a little bit hard to answer, and I'll, I'll, I'll meet, go into it a bit. So I, I was raised in a Calvinist home myself, and was blessed to have very loving parents, and I owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude and appreciate them tremendously. Um, however, Calvinism teaches that that people are inherently depraved, that their very being is sinful, and in some Calvinist circles, particularly in fundamentalist Calvinist circles, and for, for an odd reason, it, when they, the, the Baptist school of fundamentalist Calvinism seems to be particularly given to this, um, uh, a view of, of, of parental discipline that seems to th- take the line that the way to deal with the problem of the rebellious human will is to beat it out of them. And so you will hear, you will read and encounter, and I've seen this firsthand, certain sects of Calvinists, though not all of them, that take an extremely authoritarian line to child-rearing that can at times uh, border on or even reach the level of, uh, of abuse. So I, I have seen that, and sometimes it may be justified on Calvinist lines. Now, as much as I dislike Calvinism, and I do to the core of my being repudiate Calvinism, I am no fan of Calvinism, I, I think that a lot of times when you see that kind of behavior, what is at work here is not Calvinism, but a, but a deranged personality who has embraced Calvinism to justify what their own violence craves. And so there, you, know, you, have a, you have a parent that would have been abusive anyway, but now has a convenient uh, motive, a convenient justification or ideology to justify their abusive treatment. And what it sounds like you're experiencing from your mother is, uh, is less about theology and, and more about her depraved personality. And, uh, and I'm really, really, really sorry, because I, I know, I really do know how 
bad it can mess you up and how much it can hurt to have a parent that treats you like garbage like that. It wasn't my parents, but I've known others who've been in that situation. I, I know what that's like. And my counsel to you is absolutely do not own her criticism of you. Uh, do not affirm of yourself what she says about you. You are precious. You are good. Uh, you're a dutiful daughter, regardless of what she may say to the contrary. But in spite of that, you don't have an obligation. You have no obligation to stand there and let yourself be abused. And it may very well be that the most loving thing you can do to your mother is walk away from her. Um, because it doesn't help her to allow her to mistreat other people. That actually is not in her own spiritual best interest. You don't have to be a doormat to her. And God bless you, and I really hope that you can get out from underneath that kind of tyranny. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Kirk is in Mandan, North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Kirk, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Yeah, good afternoon, doctor. I was telling the screener my wife and I were married 40 years ago in front of a judge who's her uncle. But my wife is Lutheran. I'm Catholic. I attend Mass. And I've been taking communion, but not long ago I bumped into, I don't want to say a retired priest, but a priest who told me that, and I'm not, I, I want to make sure I don't get this wrong, that it, I could be committing a sin, possibly mortal sin, by taking communion at Mass on Sunday, yeah. and I need to know. I can help you out. Okay, so here's the Church teaching. If you're a Catholic, you are bound by canon law when you marry, to marry in front of a Catholic priest or a Catholic deacon, uh, unless you receive a dispensation from your bishop. Sounds like you did not receive a dispensation from your bishop, so the Catholic Church would regard your marriage as invalid, but only because—it's not because there's something wrong with you as a human being or your wife's a terrible person, nothing like that. It's just that you didn't follow canonical form. Now, here's, here's the good news. This is easily remedied. So I presume that neither one of you had been married before. Is that a safe presumption? Neither one of you was married before? Correct. Okay. So, yeah, this is a this is a no-brainer. So easy to fix. All you have to do is go repeat your marriage vows in front of a Catholic priest. You can do it in an afternoon. I mean, it's a, it's just falling off a log easy. It's called convalidating your marriage. And then and then the, then the impediment's taken away and you're and and you're validly married. Now, sometimes in your situation, it happens that the non-Catholic spouse says, I'm not going to do that. Look, I've been married for 37 years. I'm perfectly happy with my marriage. I think I'm validly married. I don't have to do what this Catholic Church thing says. And uh, maybe she won't do that. But if she does, even then, you still have a remedy. Uh, there's a way to make your marriage valid in the Catholic Church, even without your wife's active cooperation. It's called radical senation. But we only go there if she's unwilling to do the first. So so what you need to do is reach out to the pastor of your church, say, I have just learned that my marriage is invalid. I'd like to have it convalidated. We've got no impediments. just need to say our vows. Uh, can you help us out? And, uh, and then if he says yes, then you can raise the question with your wife. If she's willing to participate, great. Go to the church, say your vows, and you're done. If she's not willing to participate, go back to the priest and say, okay, I've heard about this thing called radical senation. Can I pursue a radical senation? And that would regularize your marriage and then you'd have no no impediment, no barrier to receiving Holy Communion. God bless you, Kirk. Everybody will keep you in their prayers. 833-288-EWTN. 
That's 833-288-3986. Catherine is watching on YouTube, and she says she came into the church over a year ago, um, or came to the church over a year ago, and couldn't get baptized until after an annulment was granted. Then it was wait for RCIA, and now they're saying to study for at least two more years. She's like, patience, question mark, or go elsewhere to save my soul, question mark. Where would I even go anyway? I am so lost. Okay, so maybe a false dichotomy here. You may have a third option, all right? Um, this is odd to me. Like, the, 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 the answer that you've gotten from the church is strange to me. I think there's, there's right. more here than meets the eye. Yeah, so I, I'm, there may be details I don't know about, but if you've genuinely been told that you, you can't approach the church for confirmation for two solid years, that's highly unusual. Um, so unless there's something I don't know about, um, you know, you could very reasonably go to another parish, honestly. I mean, priests are human beings, and they can, be, they can have their own little idiosyncratic uh, ideologies and agendas, and sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't. And so, you know, the, the law of the church is universal— uh, its application can be spotty in individual circumstances, and so I always counsel people in situations like this, if, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, and th sometimes that can mean try a different priest. Um, now, when it comes to the question, go elsewhere to save my soul, I, if you mean go to another Catholic parish, yeah, you might do that. Um, but the saving the soul bit, uh, I'd like to put your mind at ease, right? So in Catholic theology, catechumens, right, people who are in the process of receiving instruction to become Catholic— are Catholic in an extended sense. They belong to an order within the Church, and the Church regards you as living under the influence of grace to a certain extent. Like, the, the God is at work in your soul to bring you to the Catholic faith. And, uh, and we do not presume the damnation of people who die in, uh, in catechesis, right? That's not the position the Church takes. Um, and so Catholic Church is a journey. Catholic life is a journey. You're on a stage of the journey. But the journey is the point of the thing. The traveling is the whole thing. You've set your foot in the right direction. You've set your face. So you're not going to turn back. Um, and whether it takes a short time or a long time, you just trust in the mercy and the providence of God, right? And put your mind at ease about, oh, if, you know, if I die today in a car wreck, am I going to go to hell because I didn't get confirmed? You don't, that's the wrong way to think about this. Hey, I'm on the path to the Catholic faith. God's leading me here. I'm in his will. Uh, he loves me and wants me to be saved. This is, some, this is a basis for confidence. But in terms of that two-year thing, that's unusual. Tomorrow night's Wednesday night. That means EWTN Live with Father Mitch Packwood. John Martinoni joins Father Mitch, and he'll point out the problems with Protestantism and how we can uh, all have conversations with friends and family that challenge them to think logically and scripturally. That's EWTN Live with Father Mitch Packwood tomorrow night, 8 Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. David's in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. David, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. Hey, uh, so I'm in a discussion or a debate uh, with a, a Catholic priest in regards to the term religiosity. Okay. Um, and my, my point of view is the historical point of view, and the etymology and the definition all seems to be positive. It all seems to be, you know, your piety, your quality of religious life, and so on and so forth. And he would like to label it as, just going through the motions. And I see that more as a political position or a government position towards the term or towards religious people. I see Pharisaic as being more going through the motions than religiosity. What is your take on that? Um, 
uh, David, this is what we call a semantic debate, right? I don't, it doesn't seem to me like you guys are having an argument about the substance of spirituality or religious life. You're having a debate about the meaning of a word. And, and as a, you know, as a student of language and culture uh, and philosophy, what seems to me is that the meaning of a word if it's, is its use, and its use is entirely context-dependent. And so you're, what, you're, you're doing a very reasonable thing. You're trying to look at the way the word has been used historically and etymologically and in other languages like you know, the, the Latin religio or religare and what it might meant to Augustine when he wrote a treatise, for example, in what, about 386 called On True Religion. Um, what does he mean by the word when he uses it in that context? Um, the priest has a more colloquial uh, context involved, uh, in mind, and there is a there is a there is a modern English uh, North American context for the word religiosity that makes it something like tantamount to to Pharisaism or or hypocrisy. Um, I think you can both be right because again, the meaning of a word is, is its use, and use is dependent on context, and you're really coming at the, a particular word from two different contexts in in uh, uh, and two different traditions of usage. So what really matters is not the meaning of a word, but the substance of our relationship to God. And what both of you seem interested in avoiding is a merely f- uh, formalistic, uh, ritualistic relationship to God that doesn't touch the depths of the human person and actually change our disposition towards God and neighbor. That's what Jesus condemned, whatever term you want to use. Uh, uh, you know, Or St. John the Baptist, when he said, uh, don't say we have Abraham as our father, because God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones, rather bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. What we want is a change of life, not a change of terminology. Next up is Taryn in Hillsboro, Ohio, listening on iHeartRadio. Taryn, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Thank you. Hello, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, yes. So I was on a little bit of debate myself um, online, of course, over um, the, at what point did the early Christians adopt the Sunday fulfilling the fourth commandment? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, from, from the very beginning, and we read this in the book of Acts, Christians hallowed the first day of the week as the celebration of the Lord's resurrection. So you can read in Acts 20, for example, Paul talks about breaking bread on the first day of the week. And what we know from extra-biblical sources is that that is always the pattern. So I think the earliest description of Christian worship we have outside the New Testament um, is from Justin Martyr's Apology, which is written about 165, and he he mentions the practice of meeting on the first day of the week as sort of standard fare. This is traditional. So it goes back to the apostolic era, we have it in Scripture. We have discussions of it in early Christianity. Um, now, uh, the celebration of the Lord's Day does change a bit because, of course, uh, until the conversion of Constantine, um, it really wasn't possible to set aside the first day of the week as a day of rest. Um, you know, particularly when two-thirds of the Roman Empire is uh, is uh, a slave, and a lot of Christians are slaves, it's not like it's not like the slave owner is going to give ever, give the slave, you know, Sunday off for a day of rest and, and you know, a game of golf with his friends or whatever it might be. Um, so you would typically go celebrate the Eucharist early in the morning at the at the sunrise and then go about your business and, and live your life. Um, the uh, uh, Gradually over time, and, and really by the time you arrive in the fourth century, particularly after Theodosius and the Christianization of the empire, 
um, the desire to hallow that day as a kind of national holiday and set it aside as a day of rest becomes much more common. Um, uh, but you will find in early Christian literature, like the Didache, for example, a keen awareness, and this remains to be the case today, that there is a, dis- there is a difference between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Feast of Sunday. So, like I said, you'll find that in the Didache, which some people would date to the end of the first century. Uh, but you also find it in uh, modern literature like Pope John Paul II's encyclical on Sunday, Dies Domine, where he, he explicitly makes the point that the Christian Feast of Sunday is related to but distinct from the Jewish Sabbath. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Nancy writes in, Dear Dr. Andrews, it is said in the Bible that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. My question is, if a person is declared a saint and beatified, but later is found that he or she had some questionable behaviors or beliefs contrary to the church, is that person in heaven and still considered among the saints? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, a common opinion of theologians is that canonizations fall under what we call the secondary objects of infallibility, and so we can trust the canonizations of the Church. And if you find after canonization that someone had some squirrely episode in their life, then the, the reasonable uh, conclusion would be, well, I guess their sanctification took care of that because they're in heaven, right? And that you don't have to have... You, you have to, to be a saint, you have to arrive at perfect charity by the time you die. You don't have to have lived a consistently perfect life. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number after 4 p.m. Eastern Time. If you call that number, you can leave a question for Dr. Anders on our listener comment line. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, Call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price, hoping that you have a wonderful rest of your day. And give us a call tomorrow if you would like to answer our question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? This is EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.